You may be seated. Now let us pray that God's Spirit would illuminate the Scriptures for us. Lord, in this day and age where the idea of ultimate truth is, is often treated with a sense of skepticism or even contempt at times, but we ask that you grant us the wisdom of your Spirit to discern your holy truth this morning. Speak to our lives, Lord. If our lives feel shaky, if we feel uh, a sense of doubt or stress or grief, grant us a renewed spirit. Increase in us the gift of faith. So now, no matter what our various circumstances of life uh, we brought in here this morning, we pray that your word would speak to us, that we would lift our eyes to you in worship. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our scripture passage this morning comes to us from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 15 through 25. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, recently in uh, some of the sermons I've been giving, uh, I've been using some commonly known expressions or phrases just to kind of serve as a little entry point into a bigger discussion on Bible or theological uh, points. And, you know, my thinking is, if a phrase is well uh, well known enough to make it a common expression in our language, Well, it's likely so because it has some kind of basic sense of truth to it, something that we can all relate to. You know, it has some kind of relevance to us. Well, the quote that I'm thinking of today is attributed to Benjamin Franklin. And the context of of this quote, it comes out of a letter that he wrote in 1789 to a friend, a French scientist named Jean-Baptiste Leroy. And he wrote it because, well, he hadn't heard from Leroy in a while. And there's more going on because in 1789, there was a lot of unrest happening in France. And, you know, what we now know of as the French Revolution. Well, you know, if we think about it, 1789 was not long after our own American Revolution, right? The United States itself was still in its infancy. You know, it's only the 13 states at this point. 
And even though American independence was declared in 1776, the battles then had only just begun. In fact, it wasn't until April of 1789, the same year that Benjamin Franklin is writing this letter, that George Washington was officially inaugurated as the first president of the United States. I mention this bit of historical context because can you imagine just the amount of uncertainty and instability there must have been back then? I mean, to live in a country that is just trying to get its feet on the ground. And not only that, but the instability uh, in England and now in France. It's almost like it's this kind of contagious thing. Well, in his letter, in Franklin's letter uh, to his friend, he wants to know about how he's doing. He wants to know about his well-being. He wants to know about the recent events going on in France. And then he also turns his attention to the recent developments in the states, which the most recent thing was the ratification of the Constitution and the new government and, uh, again, George Washington being made president. But then Franklin penned this line. There we go. Our new Constitution is now established. Everything seems to promise it will be durable. But in this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. Y'all may have heard that line before, right? Nothing is certain in this life except death and taxes. You know, usually we say that with a sense of just kind of, ugh. But, you know, when Benjamin Franklin wrote that, he was 84 years old at the time. And, you know, we can sense in his witty quip that there's, you know, a sense of sarcastic humor um, about the reality of life, death and taxes. Well, and it's almost as if Franklin was anticipating uh, his own death because he would end up passing away four months later. But I was thinking about this, this line, nothing is certain in this life except death and taxes. And, you know, that's really kind of, we want certainties in life. We want guarantees in life. I mean, I'm sure many people remember when products that we bought used to come with lifetime guarantees. You don't really see that much anymore. I mean, you're lucky if your limited auto warranty on the 40,000 car you just bought would cover anything. You're also lucky if your appliance lasts, you know, five, six, seven years. You know, at that point, it's a good long life for a dishwasher. But life guarantees you know, the things that are really important, that really mean something to us. We would like to have guarantees in our lives that things would go how we want them to go. You know, for our soon-to-be graduates, you probably want to be guaranteed acceptance into your college of choice. Or our college graduates may want some kind of guarantee of a job, you know, after they graduate. Or maybe in the work profession, you know, starting a job or, or being in a position, you might want some sort of guarantee that there's at least the opportunity of advancement or promotion or raise or even past, you know, our work career. That our retirement, you know, 401ks would guarantee us a certain, you know, quality of life that we would have enough to, to support ourselves in retirement. Wouldn't it be nice to have those sorts of of ironclad guarantees. Well, I've also heard this line before. The only thing in life that is guaranteed is that there are no guarantees. 
You know, we know that life can pull the rug out from under us. That's no secret. It can come in the form of a phone call. It can come in the form of a diagnosis. It can come in the form of an employer downsizing. Or it could be a family matter. It could be a natural disaster, a global pandemic even. Economic turndown, stock market crashes, wars, acts of hate and violence. It could be an accident on the freeway. It could be an asteroid from space. Life gives us no guarantees that tomorrow or even this afternoon will be what we expect it to be. Our collective lives, you know, if we are really honest with ourselves, we admit, you know, they're, all, they're pretty fragile. We are at the mercy, so to say, of so many variables. You might be thinking, wow, thanks for the pep talk. <laughs> Get ready to go out there. I promise the whole sermon isn't, isn't like this, but... Setting, setting the context, because, you know, we realize this on a fundamental level. There are no guarantees in life that all will be well, all will be how we want. You know, and so we kind of casually joke, as Benjamin Franklin did, say, well, the only certainty in life, death and taxes. Well, this idea isn't a new concept either. In the New Testament, James knew this, and he said in, his, uh, in the fourth chapter of his letter, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Sounds like stuff we still say today. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. So here's my point for today. Don't, I, I'm giving you the point right up front, okay? Here's my point. The world assures us of very, very little, if anything. But God assures us of eternity, and that is everything. The world assures us of very little, but God assures us of eternity, and that is everything. So let's talk about this assurance that we have from God and what it means for us here and now and what it means for us going out these doors. Well, to start, I'm going to ask you to do something with me. So grab a, a copy of the bulletin, if you will, and open it up to the middle. And we're going to kind of walk through our bulletin, our order of service. And so the first thing that you see is the musical prelude, which Bev always does just a terrific, wonderful job for us. And then we have the welcome. This is the day the Lord has made. Here's some announcements, yada, yada, yada. So glad you're here. And then we join, we, we collectively center our attention to God and to worship with our call to worship. And then we gather in a hymn. This morning was blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And then we offer a prayer of praise and confession. And Harry last week gave us a wonderful sermon uh, on confession being good for the soul. But now notice right after that, actually it's on the, the next page at the top, the assurance of forgiveness. You know, typically this is the shortest part in the whole service. But in a way, it's one of the most meaningful parts of the service. And today, my hope is that this whole sermon will speak 
to the assurance of forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ, because it's, ex- it's extremely important. I remember the, the first time that in a worship service that I stood up to give the assurance of faith. During seminary, I served as a pulpit supply pastor uh, at a small church in Caldwell, Texas. And so, you know, I had prepared the, the bulletin and the sermon, and I got there, and we were going through, and we did the prayer of confession, and then it was time for the assurance of pardon. And I almost kind of hadn't really thought about it, but as I was saying those words, friends, I declare to you in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. I was shocked by how unprepared I was. Not because I didn't know what to say. I knew what to say, but I was unprepared for the weight of those words. Not that, you know, because I was saying it gave it any more weight or that I had any sort of authority, obviously, but because of those words that we say, I was just kind of taken aback. I was almost, I almost couldn't get them out like I wanted to. It just, it was this sense of just being struck by the awe that is God's grace for us. The assurance of forgiveness in a nutshell is the gospel. It means that through the cross, Jesus paid the price for our sin. He atoned for our sin that we would be redeemed, meaning our debt has been fully paid in Christ, and we are delivered from sin's consequences and from the power of even death. And these words of assurance that we say, they testify that we are now clothed in a new life in Christ. We are robed in His righteousness and can stand before God as forgiven and redeemed. And we are assured of this. We have an assurance of forgiveness. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to doubt. We don't have to fear. We can confidently know that in Christ we are forgiven. And what an amazing God we have that he would forgive us. And as our scripture for assurance, the text that we read this morning from Psalm 103 says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's steadfast love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. The weight and burden of our sin is cast off, and we can live in the freedom and joy in Christ. And I set up this point um, to to lead us into our our Hebrews text, because the book of Hebrews, if you've read it, you know it's a very dense book. It gets into a lot of nuanced details, um, and obviously I can't go into all the nuanced details in a sermon on a Sunday morning. But if I had to name a major theme that kind of the whole book speaks to, it's this, the assurance of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. The letter begins, the letter of Hebrews begins by, with given the exalted status of Jesus. In the very first chapter, in the very first verses, it says, the Son, being Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. I mean, that's, that's big. It's saying that it all starts and ends with Christ. Jesus is the authority. If, you need a te- if you're looking for a text that speaks to the divinity and the majesty of Christ, this, this is a great one. 
The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And what did Jesus do? He provided purification for sins. And where is Jesus now? What is his status now? He is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. To be seated at the right hand is the place of privilege, of prestige, of power and authority. It it means that the royal coronation of sorts is complete. And the authority and power belongs to Christ and Christ alone. Well, Hebrews continues on to speak in more detail about Jesus' status and authority and how he's you know, greater than the angels and greater than Moses. And if there was any question on where Jesus stood on the totem pole, there's no question anymore. Jesus is above it all. Jesus is at the top. He is Lord and King over all things. But then it continues on, and it continues on for really the first nine and a half chapters. Nine and a half chapters of the book of Hebrews goes into a great detail of explaining how Jesus fulfills the, covenant, the new covenant promise of God. And at the risk of oversimplifying nine and a half chapters, I'll say that much of the attention focuses on two very important points. The first point is Jesus, the great high priest. In fact, what, what it probably means to say is Jesus, the perfect high priest. And I, uh, I pulled this from a, a study Bible that I have, and it's um, basically goes through Hebrews. You can see the references in the middle from the book of Hebrews. But it's on the left side, it describes the Levitical priesthood, basically the, the, the human priest that served in the temple. And on the right side, it says how Jesus is the great and perfect high priest. And so the Levitical high priest... Well, these priests could only serve while they lived on earth. I mean, they're, they're mortals. They're humans. So once they died, somebody had to replace them. So there was many of them. And they had a limited responsibility because they were finite people. These priests also were not perfect people. They had their own sin. And so they had to atone for their own sin. They had to make sacrifices for their own sins. And these priests could only serve in an earthly sanctuary, which was only a copy and a shadow of what was in heaven. And they were only permitted to enter the the most holy place to provide um, a sacrifice of atonement once a year. But Jesus, on the other hand, reigns forever. He serves as the one great and permanent priest for us. Jesus was completely holy, blameless, and pure, and so was perfectly righteous. He did not need to make any sacrifices for his own sin, for he had no sin. Jesus did not enter the earthly tabernacle. He entered the heavenly tabernacle to serve on our behalf, and he does so eternally. So Jesus, the great high priest, and the second point that that Hebrews speaks to is Jesus the perfect sacrifice? And these kind of overlap in many ways. But Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 14, uh, I think says it well. It says, But when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that have come, even through the greater and perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for, uh, once for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. 
For if the blood of goats and bulls with the sprinkling of the ashes of a heifer sanctifies those who have been defiled so that their flesh is purified, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God? Jesus' sacrifice did what no animal sacrifice could do. Jesus' sacrifice did what we could never do for ourselves, and only Jesus could pay our debt and free us from sin once and for all. And since Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of both the priest and the sacrifice, Jesus becomes the mediator of the new covenant of God. And these two points that we've been going through, Jesus the great high priest and Jesus the perfect sacrifice, I know it's a little heady, but it's really important for our text today. So picking up in Hebrews 10, because we'll see these two things. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have the confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the perfect sacrifice that Jesus is, there's, there's that point. And then down to verse 21. And since we have, nope, back, there we go. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, Jesus being the perfect priest. Notice, oh, keep, go back, there we go, stay there. Notice first the word therefore. So whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, that means that what came before it is applicable to what comes after the therefore. Because this, therefore that. So all this stuff I've been talking about has relevance because therefore, since those two points, Jesus is our perfect sacrifice. Jesus is our perfect priest. Okay, now, next slide. There we go. Uh, It leads us into something. It points us. Since those two things, it points us to to three things. And each each, uh, thing begins with the words, let us. There is a call on our lives. Since Jesus is our great high priest, since Jesus is our perfect sacrifice, then let us first draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near to God. Let us draw near near to God in relationship. And we can do this because, again, Jesus is our priest and our sacrifice. And the second thing, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess because he who promised is faithful. Our hope, as the hymn goes, is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. God is faithful, and our hope is based on the assurance we have of Christ's work on our behalf. We no longer have any reason to fear or doubt. We have been forgiven, and eternity is secured for us. It is set within our hearts by God. We have reason then to rejoice, and so we profess to others the hope that we have in Christ. And then the last point there, 
Because, again, Jesus is our perfect sacrifice. Jesus is our perfect priest. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Oh, I said that one. I'm sorry. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Friends, because we have been forgiven, because we have the assurance of forgiveness, let us spur one another on. Let us encourage one another. Let us gather together to worship God and to love one another. Our gratitude should flow outward from us, and it should impact how we live and how we impact other people. It should impact our behavior. It should impact our our charity and generosity, our attitudes. And it should bring us together as the body of Christ. You know, a year ago, the pandemic made that difficult to do, or more difficult to do. I feel like we did as best we could, as many churches did, to have a sense of togetherness, even though we were, you know, socially distancing and everything, Um, offering online worship services, and then, you know, offering in-person worship services beginning in June, and, you know, seeing our way through this pandemic as best we can. But there's something to gathering in person that is so needed, so relevant, that touches our lives. It's important for us to be together, together in worship, together in Bible studies, together in community, together in outreach opportunities. God calls us as a community to come together and to build deeper relationships with one another, and most importantly, with Him. God calls us to be the body of Christ, and that is what we aim to do here. Friends, there is such a thing as a guarantee, and His name is Jesus Christ. This world may not be able to assure us of much or anything, but because of Jesus, we are assured of eternity. And what a blessed assurance that truly is. So let us draw near to God in relationship. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. And let us encourage one another. Gather with one another. And spur one another on in love. Because in the name of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Amen. Will you join me in prayer?